Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Good afternoon and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. I'm Cliff Taylor, standing in for regular host Kieran Hancock. On the show today, we discuss Ryanair. After its profits warning yesterday, its shares are still on the up. What is the outlook for the company? Next, we will look at tomorrow's finance bill, the key piece of financial legislation for the year. What are the key issues that the Minister for Finance, Michael Noonan, has to grapple with and what is he likely to do? After that, we'll chat to our Brussels correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, ahead of tomorrow's EU summit. What is the mood on Brexit? What will Theresa May say to the other EU leaders? And perhaps more importantly, what will they say to her? And finally, the last in our series of EY Entrepreneur of the Year profiles. First, to discuss Ryanair, I'm joined by Joe Gill, Head of Corporate Broking at Good Body Stockbrokers, and Joe Brennan of the business team at the Irish Times. Joe, if I could start with you, Ryanair came out yesterday with a profits warning uh, linked to the fall in sterling post-Brexit. What did you make of this? Was this expected? Yeah, I suppose it's not very often you see a company coming out with a profit warning and seeing the stock rising the same day. Um, mm. I, I think with Ryanair, I think the, the market was way ahead of where the company was. Um, if you look at... Um, by the time they came out with um, uh, first quarter results um, at the end of July, the sterling was already down 10% against the, uh, the the euro. And even before Theresa May signalled at the beginning of this month that she's uh, planning to trigger the, the, the Brexit talks at the at the uh, by the end of, of March, the the currency was already down about 13% at that stage. And I think Mark is kind of wondering why Ryanair has come out. Uh, so far behind some of the other uh, carriers such as EasyJet, mm. IAG, the owner of, um, of Aer Lingus and, and Lufthansa in, in signalling the, the impact of, of the, the, the currency uh, on the profits of the, of the company. Mm. But yet the shares were still up by close to 5% yesterday. Yeah, I suppose there were a few positives. I suppose um, <clears throat> the market is reading into it that, uh, the, uh, that Ryanair will uh, always make a... Um, find some way of making money at a time like this and they will pr- probably kind of uh, trigger some sort of a uh, war for, for seats uh, against rivals and needs the lunch of, of some of their, their rivals as well. Also, the, the, the move in currency between the, the, the euro and the, the sterling and the, and the dollar um, is a help when it comes to uh, fuel prices, given that obviously fuel is denominated in dollars. But it's fair to say it's going to be quite a fight in the airline sector over the next year or so. 
Brexit effects taking hold all over the place, carriers particularly flying out of Britain facing difficulties. Ryanair seems to feel they're well positioned to win the, to win the war to come. Yeah, and I think that's why the, the market is, 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 is giving it the benefit um, yesterday, seeing that it's part of the reason why the stock has, has, has risen so much. Yeah. Joe, you've watched the airline sector for many years. What is Michael O'Leary up to? Uh, the market is, is it, there's difficulties in the market, but yet he's saying he's going to add routes, add planes, add seats uh, more than he had planned before. And, and the market seems to initially like it. Well, I guess the first point is to bear in mind that the so-called profit warning yesterday has left him with a guidance of making 1,300 million of after-tax profits of the current financial year. So still, still tasty enough. It, 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 it all needs to be set in, in context, uh, and it continues to be the most profitable airline in Europe and indeed around the world in, a, in an after-tax margin basis or in, in, in terms of returning capital. So that's a key part of this whole story, that this business model in the middle of the short-haul European airline industry is continuing to be remarkably successful financially despite an environment in which yields and fares are plummeting. And um, you should note that uh, this time last year, uh, the terrorism event in Paris uh, caused a lot of disruption to demand and reduced fares all over Europe, really. And yet what Reiner is saying now, as is EasyJet, uh, fares this winter are going to fall by up to 15%. So... That's being caused partly by Brexit. Uh, it's also being caused by uh, the industry putting a lot more capacity into the system. Um, EasyJet, Wizzair, Ryanair are all significantly increasing their fleets uh, over the next four years. And as you do that, uh, you need to be very aggressive in fares in order to fill those planes. Mm. Um, uh, a couple of numbers to give you some of the logistics around it. Um, Ryanair has about 340 aircraft in its fleet today. They've ordered a net extra 110 aircraft between now and 2020. Um, Aer Lingus's entire short-haul fleet is about 36 aircraft, to mm. put that in context. So they're going to add three times the equivalent of the Aer Lingus short-haul fleet onto their network. Each of those planes probably flies eight times a day, and the Reiner model is built to fill 95 or 94 seats out of every 100 they put into the market. Mm. The only way you do that is by offering punishingly low fares mm. relative to all of your competition. And the reason that Reiner can do that and not the others is because its ex-fuel per seat costs are the lowest in the industry. And do you make money then out of the extras that the consumers, that the, the travellers spend on the plane? Or, or are you still making money on the on the bums, on the seats, so to speak? Well, you're actually making money out of fares and ancillaries, particularly in the summer months, and they continue yeah. to do that. But clearly the ancillary piece and all of the work they're doing with their digital offering and so on mm. is designed to boost the uh, non-fare part of the revenue mm. per passenger. But even when you take that into account on a per-passenger basis, the revenue in uh, Reiner is the lowest in the European marketplace um, and yet uh, they can generate after-tax margins that are the highest in the industry. Mm. So the way that they've engineered the business model, whether it's financing the aircraft, um, they issued a bond last year at a rate of just over 1%. Mm. One of their competitors issued a bond last week with a coupon of 6%. That's mm. just one simple example of how Reiner do better than others. Mm. Um, they buy aircraft in large uh, volumes so they get big discounts. They've bought this last batch of aircraft as end-of-production aircraft. Mm. So they're getting a further reduction for that. All of these things alongside their airport deals, their labour productivity, Everything is minutely managed to, in aggregate, give you the lowest unit cost in the industry. And that's the way they can power through here. Mm. 
I was reading uh, that Stelios, who still has a very significant share in EasyJet, has reservations about their strategy, which which now seems to be trying to, to mimic Ryanair, adding capacity and adding seats. Yeah. Is there a risk to this strategy of keeping adding keeping adding capacity and keeping adding planes and seats uh, if demand doesn't doesn't pick up in the next few years? There's a huge risk for the industry in total because mm. in Europe um, we have a passenger market that's broadly similar in size to the United States mm. and in the United States you've got five primary carriers after a period of mergers and collapses and takeovers. In Europe we have about 25 airlines, most of whom have per seat operating costs that are materially above those of Ryanair. Mm. So EasyJet is one of those carriers. Um, it is low cost uh, relative to a lot of Europe, but it still is uh, structurally higher than Reiner's. And the reason why Stelios is agitating so aggressively now is that he fears they're going to add capacity to a system that's fundamentally not competitive enough. Mm-hmm. And as a result, he'll start losing money or not getting a return on his capital compared mm-hmm. to the cost of that capital. So that is uh, a, a good reason why Stelios is, is, is causing trouble there. But for Ryanair, as long as they stay very disciplined on managing their costs, there's no reason why they can't go from 116 or 17 million passengers to about 180 million passengers because they will still, at that point, probably only have between 15 and 20% of the total European market. Michael O'Leary said uh, yesterday that it wasn't a good time for the other airlines to be competing with Ryanair. That, you know, uh, does that suggest that not everybody is going to be left standing at the end of the next couple of years? Absolutely. Uh, And the reason that's true is because even today, if you look at what's happening around Europe, um, the news flow would suggest that a number of carriers are under significant stress. Mm. Uh, Monarch uh, almost closed down about two weeks ago and was saved by a big equity injection. Yeah, Yeah, a charter airline that uh, has been struggling for a number of years. Um, Air Berlin has had to effectively carve itself up and give over a large part of its fleet to Lufthansa just in the last few weeks. Brussels Airlines has decided to sell its entire equity into Lufthansa because of the competitive pressures it's under. Alitalia announced a restructuring just about three weeks ago. Air Malta is under a lot of stress. TAP in Portugal is struggling. Um, when you go into each and every one of these markets, the common denominator you find is that Reiner is growing in each of these markets. And as a result, these carriers are having to respond to this intense price pressure by either merging, restructuring, or in some cases, I think, closing down. So what we'll end up with in probably five or six years' time is, I'd say, no more than 10 carriers in Europe, and we'll be heading very quickly to the four or five. Mm. And is there enough, given the scale that Ryanair already has in the market, is there enough scope still there for it to, to keep building out routes and traffic and get full use out of all the new planes that it's going to be buying? Well, you, you have two forces at work. First of all, air travel demand grows as a multiple of GDP. Mm. So if we assume that GDP in Europe is even growing at 1% or 2% per annum, then every year there's an extra, if it's 3%, you're adding about 14 million new passengers every year to the European mm. marketplace. So that's one piece that has to be serviced. And then the other piece is that there's a lot of existing air, airlines that won't be around and they're just going to close down or mm. take capacity out of the system and Ryanair is going to move into those markets. But it's going to be an intensely bruising mm. uh, period uh, There's going to be hyper competition on the fair front and as we know from Reiner's record it won't be slow in coming forward in terms of bossing the, the competition so um, I think it's going to be a very tough environment but in the middle of it as we said, despite this a profit warning yesterday, mm. uh, they're still making remarkable uh, uh, amounts of profit. So it's a last man standing strategy to some extent. Yeah, it will be. Oh, like if, if, if you look around Europe and try and identify the carriers that probably will still uh, be in position, um, I would say that uh, IAG, because uh, of the structure they've put in place with British Airways, Iberia, Welling and Aer Lingus, 
Um, Lufthansa looks like it will in one shape or another be around in 10 years time it may at that, t- that stage have, have aligned a with one of the Gulf carriers mm. but uh, not yet Air France KLM looks like a very poor business model but the French government will back it no matter mm. what uh, and then among the independent private airlines uh, the one that strikes us as being most disciplined is Wizz Air which is a central European low cost carrier that effectively has taken the Ryanair playbook and rolled it out mm. um, the difference between them and Ryanair currently is that the financing of their aircraft are largely done through operating leases, and that costs a lot more money than is the case for Ryanair, which owns most of its aircraft. Okay. Uh, Joe Brennan, do you think the financial analysts and the market are going to keep buying the Ryanair story? What what might cause them to worry? Um, I think um, certainly the reaction we saw there uh, yesterday, they, they still buy into the whole story of, of, of Ryanair and how they will navigate this over the next mm-hmm. number of months. But I think people were surprised by how long it took Ryanair to come out mm. and, and, and issue the profit warning. Is, is the confidence in Ryanair still personified in confidence in Michael O'Leary, do you think? Um, I think so. I mean, he's, he's, he signed, what, the five-year contract there a few years ago. I, I don't think people are actually pricing in or expecting him to, to, to move anytime soon. So, yes, to a large extent, yes. Joe Gill, Michael O'Leary there to stay for the next few years or...? I, I definitely think uh, he's set to stay for the next three years at least. Mm-hmm. Um, airline industry globally, going back over like history, um, the successful business models have often been defined by very strong leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you look at Herb Keller in Southwest, he was the pioneer who drove that yeah. business for many, uh, many years. And a lot of the large investors in Reiner uh, have got strong views about uh, having a, a, a leader who's you know got a proven track record and will continue to be in position because... These are very complex businesses. They sound very simple when mm. you describe them, but actually there's so many moving parts and there's so many things going on on them every day of the week mm. that you need a very uh, structured uh, management process uh, around that. And that's what they have in Reiner, uh, a very high-performing team led by him. So uh, as long as that continues, I think investors will continue to support it. But having said all of that, um, we probably over-index the importance of airlines and the Irish stock exchange because it's such a big business in our uh, mm. stock uh, index. If you look across Europe or look across America, large institutional investors don't tend to own, their, own airlines because they've been such poor performers mm. over many decades and are small parts of, say, the FTSE 100 or the Eurotop uh, 300 or whatever. So um, I would say an awful lot of international investors never buy airlines Mm. there's a small relatively small number of them that are quite big and they understand this industry quite well and they get stuck behind various business uh, teams and business models and they'll stick with them through thick and thin but it's an incredibly volatile sector from a share price performance because fuel terrorism Mm. economic shocks uh, god forbid any event in the fleet itself these Mm. things shake up the share prices violently when they happen and for that reason a lot of fund managers just don't want to own them Okay, well, it seems enough people are still willing to buy Ryanair to keep the share, to keep the share on the up. Uh, it has suffered in the last few weeks, but nowhere, nowhere near as much. I think it's fair to say as the rest of the sector. We'll turn uh, now briefly to the finance bill, which is going to be published tomorrow. The finance bill each year uh, puts into law, uh, into legislation, the measures that are contained in the budget, and also uh, some other matters uh, in terms of taxation, uh, particularly of, of companies, uh, which the minister of the day wants to deal with. Joe, I, Joe Brennan, I think it's fair to say that it was a fairly minimalist budget. Uh, so, what are the key? points now we're looking for in the finance bill tomorrow? Yeah, I suppose, I mean, it's the areas that weren't really tackled and just flagged at uh, in, in the budget last week. And, and the one that's kind of concerning most people in the market is how they're going to treat the, the funds 
um, uh, the qualifying investor alternative uh, investment funds and the uh, Irish Collective Asset Management Vehicles, which have been used in recent times by um, uh, overseas investors that have been buying Irish property. Mm. Uh, they were more; they were geared and they were set up really to to to, uh, to facilitate the growth of the the Irish domiciled uh, funds, which would house uh, global uh, international assets in the region of about uh, two trillion of assets at this stage. Um, but more recently, obviously, they've come to uh, come to the, the fore um, because of the use uh, by a lot of uh, so-called vulture funds in terms of assets they would have been buying. Um, I suppose ICAVs came to prominence again earlier on this year by the use of uh, one Dennis O'Brien when he um, put one of the uh, building he had in the corner of St. Stephen's Green into it uh, which was Canada House and sold it off for 85 uh, million so that kind of irked some people. And the fact that he was a foreign resident was was a factor that allowed him him to do that. The thing about these these assets is that uh, Irish domiciled or Irish residents um, face a withholding tax of up to uh, 41% whereas if you're an overseas investor in the these vehicles, you're you're not taxed effectively. Okay. So just I suppose to pull back a minute, uh, we're going to look at two types of funds that are going to be addressed in the uh, in the finance bill. Probably yeah. first of all, there's the section 110 funds th- that were used by vulture funds who who came and bought property from NAMA and the banks after the uh, yeah, after so the crash, and it's emerged subsequently that they haven't paid much in the way of tax on these holdings. So so, so we're going to see that addressed, we, but we kind of know how that's how that's going to yeah, happen. Yeah, so Section 110s, I mean, if you, if you go back again, uh, Section 110s, they were set up under laws that were, came, into, uh, came into place back in the 1990s. And again, these laws were set up to facilitate Ireland setting itself up, uh, the IFSC setting itself up as uh, an area for, for mm. um, securitisation, again, for, for international finance. Uh, more recently, um, it's, it's, it's become known and hit the headlines for the use by the likes of Cerberus, Lone Star, Davidson Kempner, Goldman Sachs and, and, and the likes of Carval for, for housing uh, loans that were uh, property loans that they bought from NAM and from the banks as they were deleveraging during the crisis. And again, these vehicles were set up uh, with minimal tax attached. They were designed to have minimal tax uh, and that was because they were used to, to ring fence uh, certain types of assets uh, to house them in Ireland where the ultimate parent was was liable for any tax that was, that was, uh, that was made from the property. Uh, on on these vehicles, um, the, the 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 minister of finance moved early last month to uh, to to close off a loophole when it comes to 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 Irish property in these in these vehicles. So basically, if you have one of these Section One Ten companies, you have to ring fence the, the Irish uh, property mm. assets, and profits uh, from them um, are taxed at the securitisation rate, which is about twenty five percent. So effectively. The vulture funds or international funds, whatever you want to call them, who've bought this Irish property will in the future have to pay tax on things like rental income and 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 proceeds of sales. Yeah, but again, um, uh, the, the the assets themselves. I mean, uh, a lot of them would be would be basically the assets would have loans against them from another part of the empire of the, of the of so-called sure. vulture fund. So they have to make sure that the interest rate that's applying to that is what you would call an arms length uh, type uh, interest rate. So it's not a punitive interest rate. So if they get onto an arms length. Uh, type interest rate, um, and they're making a profit on that. They the basic profit. So on the bottom that. line is they'll pay some tax, but maybe not an awful lot. Yeah, there'll be exemptions all over the place. And again, if the parent of the vehicle itself is based either in Ireland or within the European Union, uh, they have all kinds of exemptions as well. 
And how will they? How will the minister like to address the second issue, the, the funds, the ICABs? Yeah, I mean, I suppose they, 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 they've been looking at it three different ways. I mean, you either tax the the the, the, the vehicle itself, you tax the assets in the vehicle, or you tax um, uh, redemptions from the vehicle or, or distributions from the vehicle. And it looks at this stage that the easiest way to tax it would be going down the withholding tax route for 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 non-Irish residents. Okay, uh, we wait and see what uh, what emerges tomorrow on that, Joe. Uh, we take a break now and we'll be back to talk to our Brussels correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, uh, head of the EU summit, about what messages we can expect on Brexit. Join us then. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. I'm joined now by Suzanne Lynch uh, from Brussels. Uh, Good afternoon, Suzanne. Theresa May, what do we expect her to say to the other EU leaders uh, at the summit uh, tomorrow and Friday? And more importantly, what do we expect um, them to say to her? Yeah, good afternoon, Cliff. Yes, uh, Theresa May arrived in Brussels for her first uh, EU leaders meeting. Obviously, she attended a lot of meetings here in Brussels when she was Home Secretary, uh, but never at an EU summit. Um, so it's going to, there's a lot of expectation really about the tone of, of the discussion. Um, she is due to debrief her counterparts on Thursday evening over dinner. But I mean, this is quite a packed summit, this discussions on Russia, on the agenda, discussions on trade and migration. Um, so people are not in envisaging a huge discussion. Donald Tusk is going to allow her to speak and is not inviting other leaders to speak but officials here are saying that that hasn't been ruled out and um, that other leaders may ask her questions and they may intervene and the conversation could be more detailed uh, than was expected. Uh, what will be happening though is that she is expected to hold a number of bilateral meetings perhaps with EU leaders who she hasn't met yet, who she hasn't visited uh, since she assumed the post as Prime Minister uh, but also uh, people will be watching to see if she has any bilateral with with Merkel and with French President Francois Hollande also. And she is due to meet with Jean-Claude Juncker for the first time as a kind of an official visit here on Friday. Uh, So that's another strand of discussions and we'll be watching to see if anything specific comes from that meeting. What was the reaction in Brussels uh, to, to her statements at the Conservative Party conference? Quite hard line, quite a hard Brexit message. Uh, perhaps mm. the British government has pulled back a little bit since, but still, what, what, how has Brussels reacted to that? Yeah. What, what, what are people saying? I think that was... Yeah, I think it was a real defining moment, really, in this whole um, Brexit debate. Uh, there was a huge surprise here at at the strong tone uh, she took at that uh, meeting, and well, it was very clear, particularly what she said about the um, the European Court of Justice, uh, as well as, as the free movement mm-hmm. issues. I mean, the European Court of Justice is part and parcel of the single market, so I think that gave them a very strong signal uh, of what kind of Brexit uh, the British government are now going to be seeking. There were there has been a hardening of position here, um, and there has been a very tough line 
anything from Donald Tusk, the European Council president. He has talked now about protecting the, the interests of the 27, that that's his job now. Britain are leaving and, and his job is to ensure the best possible deal for the remaining members. Uh, but also, I think, from Berlin, uh, I think it's very significant that the German Chancellor, in her address to German business leaders last week, uh, it has underscored the importance of the four main freedoms of the European Union. And really, this was seen as a message to German car makers in particular that, yes, we are going to look at your concerns, but there's something bigger here at the heart of this um, that we need to keep the European Union together. And of course, free movement, it, it's not an issue, not really a political issue in Germany. Yes, the migration I- issue is, but that's migration in from um, non-EU countries into Germany. But in terms of the free circulation of movement of labour of people throughout Europe, I mean, most German people, most German businesses do not have a problem with that. So I can't see there being much leeway from the German side to give anything to Britain on this. So it looks unlikely at this stage, does it, that any deal will be reached that would keep Britain in the single market? Yeah, I think um, what uh, what Merkel again seems to be saying is that she's she's instructed officials not to have any negotiations um, with Britain before Article 50 is invoked. Um, but of course, what's getting complicated here as well is um, there's, a, there's a parallel story, if you like, uh, on Thursday and Friday. Uh, the leaders are going to have to deal with the EU-Canada deal. That's run into serious difficulty. It's fallen, if you like, at the last hurdle after seven years of negotiations and the Belgian regional parliament of Wallonia has essentially blocked the deal. So there's a real impasse there with that issue. And this has implications for Brexit because uh, David Davis and Boris Johnson have previously pointed to the EU-Canada deal Mm -hmm. as a model uh, for Britain for its... uh, you know, free trade agreement with the European Union when it eventually leaves, because some of the advantages, for example, would be that you know the Canadians don't have to um, to take part in free movement rules. But um, the Commission decided in July that this this deal needed to be ratified by up to 40 national and regional parliaments in Europe. And now we see that that decision has has caused huge problems. It's been stopped by the Belgians. Now, there may be some um, kind of compromise thrashed out in the next Mm. few days because they're keen to to secure agreement on this next week. But I think it does show the kind of difficulties Britain is going to face when its deal with Europe uh, goes up for ratification in a few years' time to the European Parliament, but also it now seems possibly to a range of parliaments across Europe. So will Poland, will Romania, etc. accept any curbs of free movement when they're voting on that? Probably not. So I think this is a good example of the kind of difficulties that lie ahead for Britain. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good point. Joe Gill, the markets have been looking at all this with uh, a mixture of, of, of fright and scepticism starting to be all over the place. How, how, how do you read the, the market reaction and what's going to happen next? Um, I, I think financial markets are increasingly troubled by what's going on and it's the level of uncertainty and uh, lack of clarity that's really bothering them because uh, business hates nothing more than mm. a lack of consistency and certainty and uh, you're seeing that in sterling and the way it's behaving but also you're seeing it in the IPO market which is interesting it's it's kind of starting to close up and collapse over the last number so, of weeks so companies aren't, aren't floating on the market in well, the way that had been expected well they're trying to float and it's turning out to be a complete dog's dinner so right. we've had a number of IPOs over the weekend that have either been pulled or repriced priced at lower levels. Mm. Um, there's all sorts of conflicting messages coming out from the UK government that are disturbing people because on the one hand there's talk of the car industry being given unfettered access to the single market and the UK government paying billions to financial services mm. to have unfettered access. That just seems to be implausible and also ignores the fact that there's a, a whole food industry, an aviation industry, a pharmaceutical industry. All of these have very legitimate concerns about the consequences mm. for what will happen uh, if they go for a hard Brexit. But 
I've also heard from uh, companies that have been briefed by the Department uh, of Brexit in the UK that the, this so-called Repeal Act could be as long as two million pages in length wow. if they were to repeal every act since 1972 or three. So the, the logistics of that alone just sound, mm. uh, r- frankly, ridiculous. And I think it's interesting that the political rhetoric is starting to uh, surface now in the UK within the Conservative Party, but also I think the opponents of the Brexit process are becoming more strident and the more sterling declines, the more inflation that comes into the UK economy and it starts to hurt people in their pockets, this political dice will start to roll in a number of ways. So I, I, I think there's every chance that there'll be a political crisis in the UK in the first half of 2017 around all of this. Mm. So nothing is clear right now. And, and, and the, the bottom line is for financial investors, that's not a good place to be. Will Brussels up the heat, Joe, do you think, in specific sectors and specific businesses by, by, by making it clear to Britain the, the price of, 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 of departing? There was a lot of talk about that uh, when it all happened in the summer. Um, I, I'd say there's a, a, some very clear-eyed thinking going on around it. They've got to be very careful that they don't just uh, they don't just do it gratuitously. Mm. But clearly, they want to send strong signals that if they're opting for a hard Brexit, this has very serious consequences for the UK economy's access to a very large marketplace. So I, th- I think this this uh, could could turn quite ugly uh, soon enough. Okay, finally, Suzanne, do you expect any clarity to emerge from the summit uh, over the next couple of days or are we really talking about shadow boxing before the, before the real scrap gets underway next year? Um, I think we really are talking about shadow boxing in terms of anything specifically coming out of the summit. But I do think it's going to be hugely important, um, the tone, if you like, that Theresa May takes with the leaders. Um, these are all seasoned, most of them seasoned prime ministers. Mm. And I remember being debriefed on the last summit when David Cameron came four days after the British referendum. And he was basically told by the other leaders, they listened to what he had to say, but they had said to him, well, why did you have this referendum? You know, we're all prime ministers. We, we are facing Eurosceptic movements in our countries. We understand the difficulties. But, you know, you have to take uh, the, the ramifications of holding a referendum. And I'm just thinking, you know, it's going to be a similar dynamic in the room. It'll just be 28 leaders and they're going to be listening to Theresa May. Most of them were pretty astounded at her tone at the Conservative Party conference. Obviously, that was a specific party political context. So, um, I mean, any any sense that she would patronise them, etc., I think will go down badly. So I think they'll be hoping for some kind of a conciliatory um, or constructive, if you like, um, atmosphere from Britain when it arrives here tomorrow um, and I think that will that is important now because I think there has been um, a very much a hardening of position since uh, the Birmingham speech two weeks ago uh, so it'll be in Britain and, and Europe's interest to ensure that this whole negotiation will be as, as constructive as possible Great Suzanne we'll watch with interest what happens in the next couple of days thanks very much for joining us and thanks also to Joe Gill and to Joe Brennan Last week, Kieran Hancock sat down with Gareth Loy and Mark McCluskey for the last in our series of EY Entrepreneur of the Year profiles. I am Gareth Loy. I'm CEO of M&M Contracts. Uh, M&M Contractors are a utility service company. We work across the UK and Ireland. Uh, we have 120 people and turn over 14 million sterling. Hi, I'm Mark McCluskey um, from OneView Healthcare. I founded OneView in 2008. Three and a half years ago, we had eight people, and today we've got 135 people. 
We were the first Irish company to list on the Australian Stock Exchange where we uh, raised $62 million. And today our market cap is $384 million. And what we do is we um, integrate hospital systems together which don't talk to each other. And we bring that into one view for the patient, for the doctor and for the nurse. So we improve efficiencies and workflow in the hospital and we make sure that the patient has a better outcome. Okay, guys, thanks for that. Um, Mark, your idea actually came from when you had some knee surgery some years ago. And you might just tell us a little bit about how these systems don't talk to each other and how you make them talk to each other. Yeah, so I founded the company after a knee operation. I was in hospital for three days. Um, The care was fantastic, but the way it was delivered could have been delivered an awful lot more uh, and better. Um, So when I left hospital, I was on an aeroplane and I was being entertained on the aeroplane And um, I wondered why I couldn't have that experience in the hospital. And not only that, was that um, I got asked so many questions and sometimes the same questions by nurses and doctors. And after doing research, what I found was, was that they had so many systems in the hospital that didn't actually talk to each other. And doctors or nurses had to go to many, many systems to get many bits of information about the patient. So we set about changing that and we saw that there was a better way of doing this. So we set up a software company that integrates into the hospital system and sits on top of all of the systems and brings it into one view. And that's how the company evolved. Um, Our markets are in Australia, the Middle East and America. Mm. Um, Unfortunately, the only hospital we have done business here is we've donated our software to the Laurel Inn Foundation up in in Sandyford. I think eventually uh, that will change and I think that hospitals in Ireland will need to have a system like OneView to improve efficiencies and workflow. And what's the problem with Ireland? I mean, is it just simply a case of money or there isn't enough money for the hospitals to buy your product? Or I, I, I think it's a case of, um, you know, uh, not allocating the money to the right places. Um, I think there needs to be a, a shift in the way um, that the um, Irish government and the HSE look at things. Mm. Um, and that has, be, that has borne fruit for us in the countries that we're in, where they have taken on our software and they have ha- they've had huge efficiencies uh, in workflow and cost reductions since they put our system in. Right, okay. Why did you choose to list in Australia as opposed to Dublin, London, whatever? Um, for a, for a couple of reasons, or for three reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, at the time, 50% of our um, shareholders were Australian. Also, um, it was our largest market at the time. And lastly, they had the third largest pension fund in the world. And at the time, nobody in Australia wanted to own a mining uh, or a resource stock or a banking stock. So it was a, a very easy way for us to go and look at a, a market and, and get relatively cheap money. So we raised $62 million at a valuation of $208 million. Right, okay. Um, Gareth, coming to you, I've seen your company described as a turnkey utilities infrastructure uh, business. Sounds very interesting. Tell us all about that. Yeah, we're, <clears throat> we're turnkey. So we specialise in telecommunications and electric. Um, I'm CEO of the company for six years. Um, whenever I took over uh, the company, uh, I took over at $1.5 million, brought up to $14 million. Uh, and we'll probably hit around about the twenty million next year. And that's so there was already an existing company that you yeah, took over. Yeah, it was my father's business. Okay, uh, he had ten people, and he turned over one point five million with very limited uh, services. So I suppose, young and eager, I, I, I took out to transform the company mm. and make it into 
So you'd worked in the business, I presume, as a young fellow, uh, with your dad. I, I did, I did. I don't know if it's legal or not, but yeah, I, my dad used to take me out when I was, you know, 12, 13, yeah. 14, 15. So I, I got to work on the sites. Uh, I got to understand how the business worked and how it functioned. And I, I guess that's probably one of the reasons why I'm, I'm good at what I do, but I understand how the business functions from the bottom up. So it's been, uh, it's been a good learn- learning curve for me. Yeah, and a lot of, um, there are always issues around succession, I guess, with family-owned uh, businesses. Was there a plan put in place in, in terms of your own, or did it just kind of happen by accident almost? Uh, you know, and there is always a wee bit of friction whenever, you know, a son and a father work together and we ever come along. And I guess there was a wee bit of friction at the start. You know, it's like hand over the reins and how it all works together. But we done it reasonably you know, smoothly, uh, and he's still there, you know. It's, uh, I always say, you know, whenever my dad's in work, he's he's the one that annoys me, but he's the first one I miss when he's not, you know. Mark, you've had a few different careers, I think it's fair to say. Um, did you Were you always entrepreneurial? Did you always see yourself as an entrepreneur, or or is it something that's kind of only come on in uh, in recent years with one view? No, no, I, I probably have always been an entrepreneur. When I was uh, 20 years of age, I had a, a dress design business over in the UK, uh, didn't wear them now, so uh, <laughs> then, that's okay now. That's okay. <laughs> and then when I came back to uh, Ireland, I ended up working for uh, Dennis O'Brien and Eastside Telecom, and I ran two divisions in Eastside Telecom. Um, and then when um, that ended up getting sold to BT, uh, I started up uh, with Mark Roden uh, Easy Cash, which was the first independent ATM yeah. business in in Ireland. Uh, and then when that was sold, I said, well, why don't I try something new? I knew nothing about healthcare, knew nothing about software. So I set up uh, OneView Healthcare. Right. I've got to ask you, what was Dennis like to work for? He is uh, he's a very strong uh, individual. Um, I find him absolutely fantastic to work for. If you, uh, if you work hard and you uh, do the right things, um, you'll, you'll be very successful in, in any of Dennis's companies. Yeah, and obviously you've had a varied career uh, then, you know, from the dresses to the telecoms, to ATMs, uh, and now to healthcare. Um, so are the, are the skills transferable across industries? I think, uh, I, I think as, as a leader, all skills are transferable. Um, one thing that I've, I've always learned is hire people smarter than you, um, and that's what I've tried to do. Um, and then and it's very, very important that um, when you do hire people, you let them make their own decisions um, and, you know, bring their um, culture um, to the organisation. So that's one thing that we're very, very strong on in, in one view is um, culture. Mm. And, you know, we have now um, just under 140 employees, but um, we've got 22 different nationalities in those 140 odd employees. Right. Um, Gareth, did you always see yourself as an entrepreneur or, or uh, are you an accidental entrepreneur in many ways? Um, I, you know, I, I, it's very hard to, to, for me to classify being an entrepreneur because, you know, it's, it's, it's somebody else saying that. But I've always got the aspiration and the drive to, to focus and grow a business and look for new skills. Uh, I get excited about business. I get excited uh, and, yeah, I, you know, I, I take risks, but albeit calculated risks. And I always want to grow and develop a business. Is that entrepreneurial? I mean, you're based in the north and uh, Brexit is uh, is looming large. Theresa May has said she's going to trigger Article 50 by next March. Um, so what's that going to mean for your business, given that you're you're largely exporting, aren't you, out of Northern Ireland? Yeah, our company uh, exports 85%. Um, we're based in Belfast, but we've also got offices in Dublin, Glasgow and Bristol. Uh, Brexit is, is what it is. It's, it's happening. We can't control it, you know. Uh, we have to function as a business and effectively and we have to work around it. Uh, where we'll see probably the biggest impact will be 
labour and operatives and general people. Uh, we believe that's where we'll suffer most and we can see that impact uh, coming across the south of England already. Um, salaries have went up. Uh, um, you know, it's, it hasn't came to mid-England or up to Scotland yet, but that's something to watch out for is where we think it'll be. Uh, yeah, there is a legal challenge coming on in Northern Ireland, isn't there, to the, to the whole uh, vote? I mean, would you support that or do you think, you know, we should just move on and, and move towards Brexit? I, I think there should be something between the north and the south of Ireland. We ultimately are one country, like we are all based on on an island, and there has to be some sort of difference in a way of how to work around Brexit. Like, you know, I was in the north today and I came to the south in an hour and 50 minutes. Mm. Um, it's it's free trade, you know, we should be uh, work together. And if there's a little bit of an amendment towards the how they impose Brexit, then yes, I believe they should. Yeah, Mind you, you know, it's all about, I mean, Brexit in part is all about controlling immigration, isn't it? So that's got to happen somewhere. It either happens at the border between the North and the Republic or it happens at the border between uh, mainland Britain and Northern Ireland, surely. Yeah, but that, uh, I, would, I would ultimately like, it, like the, between the North and the South to be borderless. It's been good for us so far and I'd like, okay. like it to remain that way. So the alternative is you probably having to provide your passport when you go, next time you go to England or Scotland uh, by ferry or by plane. Uh, would, so you would you would prefer to have a borderless uh, Ireland and and have to provide your passport going into Britain or? Well, you know, uh, we we use uh, some of the airlines. We need a passport anyway. So and some are our driving license. Is yeah. it a big issue? Not really. Mark uh, Brexit. Uh, I, I presume not so much of an issue for you guys. Well, it it may be. Um, so I've just come from London this morning and I had to pr- uh, provide my passport um, this morning at the airport. So at the moment, our markets are America, Australia and the Middle East. And so you're, you're dealing with, with, with different governments, you're dealing with different challenges. We are looking at the UK market. We hope to, to announce something quite shortly. So for, for us, I don't think Brexit is going to really impact uh, on our business. We will contract directly with the hospital as we have done in other jurisdictions. So I don't think that uh, it will affect my business like it may affect, you know, people that are exporting, you know, foodstuffs or something like that out of Ireland. Gareth, just tell us a little bit about this uh, EY Awards uh, programme. It's, uh, you know, to some people they might look in and say, ah, it's only, you know, a bit of a backslapping exercise. Maybe it's an exercise by EY to to win some business. But it's been around a long time. A lot of entrepreneurs have have gone through it. A lot speak highly of it. I mean, what's been your experience? Because you're coming from the north. You're... A lesser-known company, I suppose, to, to OneView. OneView is uh, is publicly listed, so and, you know it, it's a different uh, style of company. So, what's been the experience for you? You know, it's whenever we were the first experience, I sort of I missed a few sessions uh, with EY, but whenever I was on the plane in Boston, I started to do a bit of research. I was just so busy, uh, and I actually looked at, at what the Boston trip entailed, and I almost felt guilty because it was it was phenomenal. You know. The lineup and the people they had, and I think the first day, the first night we had there, we had the, the CEO of TripAdvisor. It was incredible. Like, I, you know, I was like, really, is this, is this the guy? Like, and they're like, yeah, that's that's it. A, on EY themselves through the journey that, that we've had over the last year, and I was just saying to Mark, you know, it's it's nearly coming to close. It's it's kind of, it's like, you know, you're going to miss it. EY have been exceptionally good, you know, with advice. A, business and different financial aspects that I've had and they've been very good and very supportive throughout the journey so I'm really appreciative to them for one for, for being part of this EY uh, and for two for everything they've done done to date Mark you strike me as a competitive sort of guy do you want to win this emerging award and, and maybe even win the overall 
I think for anybody that's a finalist uh, would like to win. I think any entrepreneur would like to win. There are fantastic companies. If I win, I'd be very, very happy. If I don't, I'm just happy to be a finalist. If there was one thing the government could do for entrepreneurs or to support entrepreneurship, Mark, what do you think it could be? I, I think that there should be more education on entrepreneurship for, for younger people. Um, and, I, and I mean, yeah, from 12 years on and encourage people to try new things and encourage people to visit entrepreneurial businesses. And um, I truly believe also that when people go to college, that there should be something in college, that there should be an entrepreneurial course uh, in college that people can attain to and have then the ability to go off and to start their own businesses. And that obviously entails investment by governments. Now, obviously, Enterprise Ireland are a fantastic organisation and they helped uh, one view out at the very, very beginning where we had to match funds that they gave us. And I'm glad to say that we actually repaid all of the funds so they could use those funds for other organisations. So, you know, for Ireland and for any economy around the world, small businesses are truly the ones that generate income for governments and uh, stability for, for everybody. So I would encourage the Irish government to look at that. Gareth, same question for you. A bit different for you, I guess. You've got, on the one hand, the Northern Ireland Assembly, but you've also got Westminster, uh, which, which has a, a say in affairs uh, in Northern Ireland. So what, what could either or both uh, do to encourage entrepreneurship? Uh, for me, we're actually quite fortunate. We have, uh, same as yourselves, Enterprise Ireland, we've got Invest in I. And over our journey, uh, over the last six years, they've, they've been very, very good to us. Uh, they've helped guide us, mentors, and brought us on courses. And yes, it's a government organisation, but... I feel it's, it's a very strong way to, to engage in business. Uh, what I personally like, I'd like to see... A lot of people have ideas and understand what they want to do, but they don't know how to get there. Um, and the best way to get there is is link up with people who have got there. Uh, and it's a difficult one because people... You know, Mark, your story is, is, is very good. Mark's got there. You know, it's, I'm sure there's a lot of people would like to talk to you to understand how, how you get through that journey. And because he's actively and still very busy in a growing business, it would be a good conversation for a lot of people to have with the likes of Mark and, and other entrepreneurs that are there actively working and in strong businesses. Just finally, I want you both to project out five years, let's say. Um, where do you see your companies? Uh, will they still be owned or controlled by yourselves? Uh, will they have new markets? Will they have, uh, I don't know, you know, where will you be in terms of turnover or staff numbers, etc.? cetera? Uh, Mark, do you want to take that first? Five years' time, my God, I've never looked five years' time in my life. Um, <laughs> Maybe you'll have a new business by then. No, I, I, I think that one of the things that I was very, very strong on when we listed um, on the Australian Stock Exchange, I was asked by institutions, how much money are you taking out off the, off the table? And I said, I'm not taking anything because this is at, at the beginning. So we now have... Um, we're now in the hospital business. We've now gone into the senior living business, the assisted living business. Um, we are looking at different markets. As I said, we're in America, Dubai, and um, Australia, where we have contracted with six out of the top 15 hospitals in the United States. By the end of next year, we want to be contracted with 12. We're very, very focused on the top 100 most innovative hospitals and the top healthcare systems around the world, and we're going to do exactly the same in the assisted living market. Other markets we're likely to go into, there's 20, 20 million hospital beds around the world. At the moment, we're only concentrated on 1 million. We're about to go into Asia. 
Uh, Japan is a huge market, so we're actually looking at that. And Enterprise Ireland have International Markets Week at the moment, so I'm actually there tomorrow meeting with uh, some of their colleagues in Japan and Singapore. So that's an area where we're very, very interested in. Obviously, the UK, because it's on our doorstep, I think that that would be a market that we would definitely be into. We have built a mobile product where we're now connecting uh, people before they come into hospital. So we're educating the people before they come in, scheduling appointments, and then when they leave on discharge, they're getting all of the discharge orders, so when to take, a ba- when to take medication, when to t- change a bandage. So in five years' time, I think what will evolve will be is that hospitals will want to make sure that patients are well and they do not have to come into hospital. So I think that the, the business may change to that regard. Uh, from, a, from a people perspective, um, we've hired 80 people in eight months. Uh, we'll end the year with probably about 170 people. Next year, we'll probably have about 270 people. God only knows how many people what we'll have in five years' time. And lastly, from a from a revenue perspective, um, our market cap at the moment is about 380 million. Um, I see no reason why we can't be a market cap of two billion Australian dollars. Australian dollars. Okay, Gareth, uh, that's a, quite an act to follow. Yeah, I should have went first, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I shouldn't talk, to be fair. <laughs> well, our, our company has grown, uh, as you know, quite considerably in the last six years. Uh, we're sitting now, M&M Contractors is at a staff level of 120 people, 40 million sterling this year. We've just recently acquired a, a new company called Mascot Construction, who are a leading provider in construction. We've just acquired them, uh, which will bring our turnover up to 30 million next year. Uh, and that leaves us with a staff level of 200. Now, people always say, you know, talk about revenue, and, and I generally avoid that. Uh, what my plan is over the next five years is to grow the build business uh, sustainably and strong. People are key. To have a business, yeah, you know, 2 billion, 100 million, 50 million, whatever the millions that it is that works for you, but is have that business that is strong, people in it that, that, that are part of a business and feel like they can, they can grow their career within that business, that, that excites me. And is this something you want to keep in family ownership, if you, if you like, or are you open-minded about possibly selling, you know, to a bigger player? Maybe you know, I, I and it was one of the things on on the EY uh, Boston trip they, they talked about. Always look at. Uh, I think one of the things they said was was always look at opportunities. Um, do I want to keep it a family business? No. Uh, do I want to encourage people of same as myself, like-minded, want to grow a business development? Absolutely, and I'm, I look for them daily. I look for people that are good. I look for people that are, and I, and I always engage with them and have a cup of coffee and see are they the type of people that would be good for our business and bring them in as shareholders or whatever it is that's going to help me grow this business to where it needs to be. Mark? Can I just add to that? Yeah, and um, albeit we're a listed company, we are very much a family. And, and one of the things that I was very, very conscious the day I started OneView that anybody that joins OneView becomes a shareholder in the company. And that was even before we listed so one of the things that um, now all of our employees are shareholders. And when we listed, I was just flabbergasted that over 65% of our staff actually bought stock as well. So it was uh, unbelievable. Oh. Unbelievable. Okay. Great. Okay, gentlemen, I wish you continued success and good luck on the awards night. Uh, who knows, we might have you back as a winner of one of those gongs. Gareth, thank you, Mark, Karen. thank you very thank much. Thanks very much. Thanks, Thanks today to producer John Casey and sound engineer JJ Vernon. You can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or check us out at irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and tune in next time. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.